So how does the relationship work? That's the question this morning. I want to take a few minutes and tell you how the relationship works. Just like any other relationship, there are three things you're going to need to remember. And the first one is, if the relationship with God is going to work, then you must make that relationship a priority in your life. It has to be a priority. It has to be, in fact, the top priority of your life. Jesus said in Matthew, now I'm getting a Facebook message. I'll turn it over. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33, he said this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So this was God's plan. He said, this is how the relationship's going to work. It's got to be number one. It's got to be number one in your life. You know, some people put all kinds of things in front of their relationship with God. Some people put their race in front of their relationship with God. So they're, they're first a certain race and then second a Christian and you can see how that influences everything in there. Some people put their politics in front of their relationship with God. Others, their business or their family. You've seen some people, it's almost like their family is their religion or their career. Do you know you can even put your religion in front of your faith and your relationship with God that can be all about uh, your religion or your denomination Some people place the government in front of their relationship. Their loyalty to the government supersedes their loyalty to God. Or even their sexual identity in front of their relationship with God. Their personal pleasure or goals come first. And their life is about achieving some sort of personal satisfaction or goal that they may have. Their possessions come in front of their relationship with God. And so there's just many I could go on and on and on with this, but you get the point that if any of these other things come first, then your relationship with God is influenced by whatever that is. And it becomes incredibly messed up. What if your politics, your your faith is determined by your political position? Or what if your faith is determined by your sexual orientation? Then that's going to determine what kind of faith you have, isn't it? Your faith will follow that rather than that following your faith. And so you can get really, really off And you could get into areas that Jesus never designed designed for you to be. For example, declaring when the end of the world is going to be. Okay? This man's agenda came before... I would say his religion came before his faith. And so therefore, his faith became whacked out. Did you know that the major works of Shakespeare have been translated into 60 languages. The major works of Shakespeare. The Bible has been translated in over 2,000 languages, and it's continually 
more are being added all the time. So 10 times more than any other book published, the Bible has been translated into different languages. If a book's going to make it on the New York Times bestseller list, it has to sell 5,000 books in a week. Now, that may not sound like very much, does it? When I first read that, I thought, well, that doesn't sound like much. 5,000 books in a week. Apparently, that's pretty good. You sell 5,000 books, you make the New York Times bestseller list. And so then the next thought is, well, then why isn't the Bible always number one on the New York Times bestseller list? And the reason is because it would always be number one. So there would never be any other book that would be able to surpass that. Because according to uh, navigators, the Bible is published 950,000 times a week. 5,000 to make the New York Times bestseller list. The Bible is printed and published 950,000 times a week. Did you know that in northern Nigeria, it's uh, under Sharia law that you will be sentenced to death if you're found reading the Bible? In Sudan... They have an anti-Bible policy. And so in northern Sudan, the government there does not allow the Bible to exist as, as much as they can help it. In Indonesia, Indonesia, it's against the law to carry a Bible in public. The same is true in Pakistan. In China, the Bible can only be read by state-authorized people. You have to have a certification from the government to be able to read the Bible legally in China. In Vietnam, it's also forbidden. Why? You've got to ask the question, why? Why all this about the Bible? Why is it forbidden? Why is there so much uh, intensity and emotion surrounding the Bible? Why are people willing to risk their life for the Bible? Do you realize that there have been more martyr, martyrs in the 20th century than all the previous centuries combined? People are dying for the right to own a Bible today in this modern age. The London Times ran an article about this phenomenon. And this is what they said. Forget the modern novel and the TV tie-ins. The Bible is the biggest single-selling book every year. In fact, they sent a reporter to the International Bible Society to find out why. What is the big deal about the Bible? And this is what they came back with. Here's an answer. And I quote, well, I'm told continually it's a very good book. There were two Bible salesmen that were sent out to sell Bibles one afternoon. And they came back at the end of the day and... And one guy said, man, this whole community is totally heathen. Not a single person wanted to buy a Bible. And the other guy says, wow, I, just, I found just the opposite. I sold 350 Bibles. And I said, well, how did you do that? He says, well, I just went up to the door and I said, hi, my name is Bill. And I'm selling Bibles. Would you like to buy one? And they say, well, no, we really don't need a Bible. He says, well, then, 
can, can, I, can, I, can I read a scripture to you? One reason the Bible is the most powerful book in the world ever written is because it causes change in people. It causes a life change. It has an impact on a person's life. Think about all the books you read. Can you say that about very many of them? The Bible is banned in some countries because the Bible acts as a mirror. It's a mirror to your soul. When you read the Bible, you see a lot about yourself. You see your soul. It has that way. It's, it's like it's alive. It's a living document written thousands of years ago, but almost like it was written yesterday. And many times when you read the Bible, it's almost as if it was written with your life in mind. People say that all the time about the Bible. They say things like, the words literally jumped off the page at me. Or this was written just for what I needed. Do you know this morning somebody walked in our doors in our church, a regular attender, and said that very thing to me? Did you read such and such? It was just what I needed. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said this. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'd like to introduce you to the Bibles that we have there. You have Bibles at your tables? If you could just pass them out. If you have your own Bible, that's fine. Go ahead and use your own. And if you don't have one today, then you can use the one that we provided. This is the New Living Translation. And so all of the scriptures that I'll be quoting for you today come out of the New Living Translation. Just go ahead and find Matthew 4.4. Page 578. I'd like you to become familiar with this thing we call the ancient text. Matthew 4, 4. Each of the books have a title. This one is called Matthew because it was written by Matthew. And then they have chapters, one, two, three, four, five. So then you find chapter number four. And then within the chapters, you have verses. And in this case, we're looking at verse number four. And I read it to you already. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is also a manual for life. Turn to page 727. Page 727 is Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, page 727. Chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2a, which is just the first part of that verse. When you see the a or the b, it's splitting it in half. And this is what it says. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Go over to page 723. Back a few is the book of 
2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 723, and verse 16. This is the Bible talking about the Bible. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. Now, we call that God-inspired. We know that the Bible was written by people. In fact, we know uh, a lot about some of them and very little about others. But we know that there were 40 different authors of the Bible. Kings, scholars, philosophers, statesmen, fishermen, poets, historians, doctors. All who participated in writing portions of the Bible. And so you might ask, well, how can it be God-inspired if it was written by men, was written by people? How could this be God's work? A good analogy of that is the uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. St. Paul's Cathedral is a, an in spectacular, inspiring, uh, inspiring church that was built. And the church was built in the 1700s by Sir Christopher Wren. He started building in 1676, uh, and it took him 35 years to build this building. It was actually completed in 1711. And it was said of him that he was extremely meticulous about the building of this cathedral. In fact, they say that his fingerprint is on every single stone of that building. He was so careful and meticulous how everything was done and built and every stone was placed. And yet, he did not touch one inch of that building. He did none of the work. He did none of the craftsmanship. He was just the architect. And so God, in the same way, has built the Bible. He has inspired it. He has influenced its creation. It has been made exactly the way he wanted it to be as he used other people to do the work. In the early church, one of the church fathers is Irenaeus, and he said this, The scriptures are perfect inasmuch as that they have God as their author. It's the ultimate authority on life. Now, it may sound terrible to some people, this thing about correcting you and these rules and how the Bible can be a mirror to your life and it tells you all the things that you do wrong and it sounds so depressing. Think about it this. Uh, Nikki Gumbel, who actually is the, the uh, author of this course, tells a story about how he was... Uh, went to a soccer game with his son. He's got an eight-year-old boy who plays soccer, and they showed up at the game one day, and the coach, who is also the referee on certain games, couldn't make it. 
And so we walked over the other side and asked those families and that parent, does anybody here have know how to play soccer, know the rules? Can anybody be the referee? Nobody wanted to do it. And so finally, it fell on him. He was going to have to be the referee for this soccer game this day. Well, they didn't have any of the equipment. They did have a soccer ball. He didn't know any of the names of the kids. And so uh, he, he couldn't say where they needed to be and what position they needed to play. And so he just said, go out there and do what you do. He didn't know any of the rules of soccer. There was no way to put boundary markers. He had no chalk or line or string. And so they just started out in the game. And after a few minutes, some problems began to erupt. People started shouting, the ball is out. And other people, no, it's not out. But how does anybody really know there were no markers? And that was a goal. And no, it wasn't. And and then eventually this thing just degraded to the point of an all-out fight. Parents, kids, everybody screaming. Horrible mess. Eventually, the coach showed up to everybody's relief, stepped in, put out the boundary markers, and began to conduct the game the way it should be played. So let me ask you the question. Here it is. Were the kids more free without the rules or with the rules? Here's another way of looking at it. Uh, they did a study on schoolyards, and the study was about something else, but this is what they discovered. They took two schoolyards, elementary schools, one playground, they built a fence around the whole perimeter of the playground. On the other one, they built no fence. And then they observed the children for over a week to see how they utilized those playgrounds. The playground where the children had a fence, the kids played in the whole area of that playground. Every corner, every inch, the kids played on that all week long. The playground where the kids had no fence, they only played in the very middle. So let me ask you, which group was more free? The ones with the fences or the ones without? You see, God is not out to get people or harass people or point out their sins or to be angry at them or judge them. God's intent was to provide freedom, joy, peace, a great life. And he knew that in to do that, there needed to be some healthy, normal, reasonable boundaries. The Bible provides that. Some people misunderstand the Bible, and you probably met some of these people, and they see the Bible as a thing. You know, they see it as, as a, a scientific uh, book. Or they see it as a, a mathematical book. This uh, false prophet who predicted the end of the world did that very thing. He took the, a few dates in history and mixed them around with dates in the Bible and came up with this ridiculous end of the world proclamation. And that, that would be like, it, let's say you had a brand new BMW. And you spent, you know, what do what they go, $50,000? And it's in your driveway. And on every Saturday, you went out to your BMW. You sat in the front seat. You opened the glove box and you got out the manual. 
the manual to your BMW, and you just read that thing and said, oh, look at this. It's got rain-sensing wipers. Oh, it's got heated seats. It's got leather seats. It's got a pure cherry wood dash. I mean, this car is amazing, and every single week you are fixated on the manual. Is that stupid? Throw the manual down and go for a drive, right? The manual is meant to instruct you on how to drive. Well, maybe not how to drive, but how to be safe in that thing, how to operate it. The Bible is a manual on how to have a life. It is not the Bible. The Bible isn't the thing. The Bible isn't what God wants us to make our focus on. The Bible is to point us to a relationship with Jesus. That's what it's about. And that's what this guy apparently completely lost. In his pursuit of that, perhaps he ended up with something else. So what happens when God speaks to us? He speaks to us through the Bible. I'll tell you what. People come to faith. People come to faith in Jesus Christ when the Bible speaks to people. I'll tell you about this guy named Earl Smith. Earl was the cousin of the man who started Federal Express. And he lived his whole life in privilege. I mean, he had... didn't have a job. He didn't have to work. He's just an instant gazillionaire. And so he loved to party. He was a total party animal. And uh, eventually got him into drugs and more difficult and intense drugs. And finally uh, almost killed him. He's a Charlie Sheen type person. Ended up in the hospital. So a friend came to him and gave him a, a New Testament. And he was so thrilled to get this New Testament because... It had such thin paper that you could roll those into joints really well. And so he smoked his way with, uh, with, with, with weed all the way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And figured, you know, I've smoked my way down. I should probably read the book of John where he stopped. So he started reading the book of John, and you can guess what happened. He met Jesus. And he gave his life to Jesus. He started this process of faith in Jesus. And his life started to become very different. And his whole family was freaked out. They're like, you know, we kind of liked him better when he was on drugs. And so they hired a therapist to meet with him and find out what his problem was. And so this beautiful therapist, a very attractive woman, meets with him. And she says, I don't understand you. You've got, you know, you're all this stuff and, and you're... You're acting this way, and your family's very concerned. And she, she looked at him, and she said, What do you have? And he explained to her that he read the book of John, and that he met Jesus. And she said, I have everything I could want, and I'm miserable. And so he told her about Jesus. She gave her heart to Jesus, and then they got married. In our church, we have this practice of reading the Bible along with a journal. And we call it the SOAP journal. And our leadership team currently is going through this as well as others in our church. And it's, it's a great little tool if you're interested. It's just, you use it with your Bible. 
You open up your journal and you can write down your thoughts. When you read a scripture that jumps out and says something to you, you can write it down in that journal. It's an excellent way to cultivate a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, if the Bible is how God speaks to us, then how do we talk back? Well, great question. The answer is prayer. We call it prayer. It's talking to God. And prayer is just simply that. The way you would talk to a person is the way you talk to God. Now, Jesus did give us some specific teaching on prayer. I read a cute little story about a boy who uh, announced this to his family. He said, I'm going upstairs to bed, and I'll be saying my prayers. Does anybody need anything? And I think that's true of most people. For most people, prayer falls into two categories, right? First category is, oh God, bless my food, bless the meat, bless the trees, bless Billy Bob and Sue Ellen and Uncle Bob. Thank you for the weather. Okay, that's one category of prayer. The other category is, oh God, get me out of this. I swear I will follow you if my boss never finds out. Those kinds of 911 prayers. But Jesus taught us to pray in a specific way. He said to pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. He said that if you're going to talk to God, address him as your Father. Speaking through the authority of the Son. So I want to illustrate how that can happen. During the Civil War, there was a soldier who, from the north whose family experienced terrible tragedy. He was the only son, and he needed to get back home off the lines, back home to go and help his family and take care of his family. And so he, as he went through the ranks, he couldn't get anywhere. He couldn't get anyone that would grant him any kind of leave whatsoever. And so out of just sheer desperation, he decided to go to the White House. So he marches up to the gate, and of course, you can imagine what they said. They said, get lost, loser. Nobody sees the president. So he went out to the front of the White House, plopped himself down on this park bench in just despair. Didn't know what to do. This little 10-year-old boy comes up and sits down next to him, and he just, he doesn't know why, but just, he starts pouring out his whole story to this 10-year-old kid. So he's crying. He's saying, I got to go to my family. I'm in desperate need and nobody will listen to me. And so then the boy speaks up and he says, I think I can help you. Why don't you come with me? He's like, well, I've tried everything else. I'll go with you. So he goes and follows the little boy and they go around to the back of the White House. They go to the back door of the White House. There's a soldier there and he actually salutes the other soldier as they walk in. They go in, they pass through another series of guards, and that guard as well salutes the soldier. Finally, they go up, and the door is flung open by this 10-year-old boy, and there is President Lincoln standing with the Secretary of State in the Oval Office having a conversation. President Lincoln turns to the boy, and he says, Todd, what do you need? And he says, Dad... This guy needs to talk to you. That's how that relationship works. We have instant 
instant access to God the Father through what the Son has done for us. The Son has paved the way for you and I to be able to cry out at any moment and have an audience with God the Father. This happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn to page 679, and I'm just about done. I'm going to wrap this up. Page 679, Romans chapter 8, and two verses, 26 and 27. It says, And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. And it's very true. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. So there are times when we don't know how we should pray or what we should pray. And we have the Holy Spirit who is available to us to help us know how to pray and what to pray. Many times I'll get stumped myself in my own prayer time and I'll simply stop and say, Holy Spirit, help me to pray as I should. Teach me how to pray. Lead me in the kinds of prayers that I need to be praying. So how does the relationship work? God speaks to us through the Bible, and we speak to him through prayer. 